Can we confront medical errors, make sense of them, and come out the other side better for our efforts? Let's talk all about it with physician author Daniel Ofri right here on episode 282 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I love having you along for this ride. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been on this journey for months or years with me, thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing and healthcare career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, technology, and beyond. And did you know that Nurse Keith Coaching is your one-stop shop for all things related to your career? That is correct. I offer individualized, holistic career coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals around the world, and if you mention you're a listener, you'll get 10% off your first coaching package. So email me today at keith at nursekeith.com and we'll schedule a complimentary consult to explore how coaching can help you have the most satisfying life and career possible. This episode of the Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Incredible Health, where hospitals connect with nurses and other high-shortage healthcare professionals to dramatically speed up the hiring process. Using the latest in automation, data, and recruiting technology, they're able to provide a fantastic experience for both sides of the equation while addressing their customers' mission-critical needs, having enough exceptional staff to deliver top-quality care to patients while driving revenue and reducing costs. Check them out at IncredibleHealth.com, and I am grateful to Incredible Health for their generous support. And today, we are welcoming friend of the pod, Daniel Ofri, a physician with a very specific set of skills, knowledge, and expertise that have coalesced in an incredible book, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. Daniel Ofri, welcome to the show. We are going to jump right into the fire. What can you tell us in the big, big picture about your view of medical errors in the 21st century? I would say that my viewpoint was changed from thinking about errors per se to the larger tent of patient safety and making medicine safer overall. Because we think about errors, we think about, oh, cutting off the wrong leg kind of error. And that does happen, although it's fairly rare. The bigger errors are often much more subtle Things we don't do as well as we could, you know, almost misses, patient safety issues, near misses, that type of thing. So thinking a little more globally, um, because if we kind of go one at a time for the big errors, we just, you know, whack that mole. And we don't look at the larger system of how the systems make it harder to to do good medicine and nursing, particularly the electronic medical record, which is a whole other conversation. But really thinking in just sort of the harm reduction approach to patient safety. I see. So harm reduction, right. So we know errors happen, right? Because we're human beings, we interface with technology, but what is it that's occurring now at this point in the 20th century? We're in the year 2020, of course. What's going on and what are some of the factors that you've identified that you feel are contributing to medical errors? Well, there's, there's several things. So I think our focus historically has been on the person who made the error. Oh, you know, nurse A grabs saline instead of lactated ringers. You know, she's an idiot. She gets punished she get, or sent for re-education. Um, as opposed to thinking, well, what in the system makes it possible to grab the wrong IV fluid, right? Are they sitting side by side? Are they, they look almost alike? Is the nurse have too many patients? So thinking about 
the system because the truth is everyone, or I'd say nearly everyone who goes into healthcare now goes in it for the right reasons, right? The folks who went in for money and glory, they've long since left for Wall Street, right? You can get an MBA in two years. You don't need to vomit on your shoes. Those folks are gone. So really, the people who are in it now want to do the right thing. Even the people who make a ton of money and seem jaded, they still want to help their patients. So if an error occurs, we really care, right? And and so taking that person and making them the object of the morbidity and mortality rounds or being cited by their supervisor or made to go for education, you know, most of us know, we know we got the wrong, you know, IV fluids. We don't need to be re-educated about that. We need to really help us make it easier not to make the errors. Okay. So, and when you say make it easier to not make the errors, that to me sounds like a systemic problem. We want to look at, like you said, is the saline sitting right next to something that looks exactly like it, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's plenty of systemic issues going on. And you mentioned in the book that a lot of medical error um, what would you say? Research or literature talks about acute care hospitals, right? But have you also looked at with any any depth ambulatory care and doctors' offices and those sorts of places? Have you also is there enough out there to tell you what's happening outside of the acute care setting? We are just beginning to shift our focus. It's very preliminary, right? Hospitals are the place to look. A, there's the patients. They're there. They're all you know, stapled to the beds. They can't leave. <laughs> right. Data's there. The staff are there. The data gathering is easy. So that's, you know, and of course, errors are more and bigger in acute care. Um, it's very hard to study outpatient, right? A patient comes for 10 minutes and they don't come back for six months or a year. They go to a different hospital. So tracking down outcomes has been historically very difficult. So one of the slight upsides of the merger mania of hospitals and health systems is that it's now actually a little easier to follow patients because they often will stay in a health system, but uh, it's still very difficult. So let's take the example of what kind of error we're looking for. So procedural error, right, the cutting off the wrong leg, that's pretty easy to define. How does one define diagnostic error? Right, if, if you someone comes in with dyspepsia, you diagnose GERD, it turns out to be an ulcer, were you wrong? Or is that is the diagnosis in evolution? It's very hard to measure diagnostic error, yet that's probably one of the biggest sources of patient harm now is missed or delayed diagnoses. And so a few studies have begun the process, but the data are very difficult to um, to gather. I see. And, and just in a rigorous way. What we have learned is that diagnostic error is frequent, and, and often it's because we have cut short the data gathering process. So jumping to fast and easy conclusions, or using heuristics as we call them, or shortcuts, um, on one side is a way of dealing with lots of information, but it puts us at risk of making errors. We can't checklist the diagnostic approach the way we can checklist, you know, placing a catheter to decrease catheter-related infections. Mm-hmm. So we have to work a little more with our neurocognitive systems as to how we can help our thinking process be less prone to error. I see. And and what is going on when a physician, a nurse practitioner, a provider of some kind makes that diagnostic error because they're going for the simple 
like the low hanging fruit. Is that a problem with the differential diagnosis process? Is it um, related to the ways in which you point out in the book that the EMR sort of guides you along a certain line of thinking that might be different from the way your mind would organically go when you're looking at a patient and a situation? What are the factors contributing to this particular error process that you've observed? So the answer is E, all of the above, <laughs> Okay, uh, as all of these things are. And, and so I was really fascinated by the work of ETL Drawer, who's a cognitive neuroscientist who, who looks at the idea of things that a lot of our medical error approach is not very brain friendly, right? He uses the example of passwords, right? You have to have a password for the medical records and the EKG system and the x-ray system and your home email and your work email and your pass, you know, and every password has to have one capital letter, one small letter, a number, a special character, some fungal species of your choice. And you can't, you can't write them down. Right? <laughs> That's not a brain friendly system. It's right. impossible. But our brains, smart that they are, come up with a better system. We use our pets names or our kids names. We repeat them all the time and we write them down because otherwise we couldn't absorb that amount of information, we'd be paralyzed. So if a patient comes in with dyspepsia, I could pull Harrison's off the shelf and start leafing through 2,000 pages till I got to the spot on dyspepsia and make a diagnosis, but I'd see one patient a day at best. That's not functional. So we have heuristics for what GERD is or, or gastric ulcer. Um, so it's a, um, a very uh, well-functioning response to in, uh, an impossibly large body of information. But we have to then remember, so ways to help us not do that in error is to make sure we've correctly gathered data and then ask ourselves, what else could it be? And that's a very important question. And, and, and one of the things in the few studies that have looked at outpatient work is that rarely is a true differential diagnosis documented. Now, we probably do do it in our heads unconsciously, but we need to push ourselves to be explicit and, you know, particularly in our heads, what else could it be? And the second question I ask, is there anything I can't afford to miss? Right? So you're right, dyspepsia, heartburn, reflux, you know, gastritis. The fact that I, I'm, I'm wrong on which one of those are probably doesn't matter a lot for the patient because the treatment's the same and I'll probably all get better. But the bleeding ulcer could be disastrous. So although I don't necessarily have to completely dissect the weeds to to change, you know, to distinguish heartburn from reflux, I do want to make sure I've asked the questions about the bleeding ulcer. So what can I afford not to miss? And then to make sure we have some sort of follow-up. The patients don't come back. Well, maybe they got better, or maybe we missed a gastric cancer, or maybe they're dead or in another hospital. So we don't have a system for following up. And that's a systems issue. But if we could get some feedback, we might find out, oh my gosh, I was wrong. And so our system needs to help us learn when we're actually making errors because, you know, how then do we improve? Very good points. And you mentioned in the book that, you know, in acute care, like you said, we have the patients essentially stapled to the bed. They can't go anywhere. They're a captive audience. So we can we can reverse engineer what we just did and figure out what happened. And in the ambulatory setting, a patient comes for primary care. They're not happy with what happens. They go to a specialist. They go to the next city over, see someone in a separate hospital system, and they're lost to us, right? Or there's records at that other hospital system, and we don't even know the patient went there. So that causes us a lot of issues too, doesn't it? I had a patient yesterday in clinic. He said, oh, he was at another hospital yesterday. He has some chest pain. So what happens? I go, I had a, a little something, a congestion or a heart attack or a stroke. 
I'm like, well, which of those did you have? You didn't know. <laughs> right. And I couldn't access it through our chart. I'm like, well, it's really different if you had a heart attack or a stroke or congestive heart failure. He genuinely did not know. Wow. And here I am trying to figure out, okay, well, which direction do I go in? And and at least he told me, had he not, he maybe he wouldn't mention it. Maybe if it was, you know, weeks later, he would have forgotten that it happened. But there's all sorts of that that stuff going on. So we're really practicing medicine. It's kind of with one eye patch on sometimes we don't have all the data and, and of course we can't be expected to be omniscient you know we we try our best but that's what leads me to the other idea that concerns me is when you hear about medical systems talking about eradicating medical error right we're going to have zero medical error zero tolerance and that's a catchy slogan it looks great and of course no one wants medical error but that's unrealistic once we sort of insist on 100% compliance you know the system will be gamed. Absolutely. And not for malicious intent, right? I don't think any of us are out there with malice, but you know, if they hand you 27 checklists to do and you can't get it done, you're just going to check all the boxes to make it go away so you can start taking care of your patient. Mm-hmm. So you'll get 100% compliance. And, and a great example is the pre-op checklist, which has had marvelous success in decreasing um, medical errors and improving patient outcomes, both in high-end academic centers in the U.S. and U.K., but also in under-resourced hospitals in Tanzania and in um, uh, India. Hmm. So um, this was great. Well, then the, the province of Ontario decreed in 2010 all their hospitals in the whole province would use the checklist. And they're going to show how you can improve patient safety on a grand scale. But it didn't work out that way. Despite a 99% compliance with the checklist, there was no change in mortality, error rates, nothing. No matter how they sliced and diced the data, you know, sickness and sex and age, and nothing. So, you know, it worked in Tanzania and it's not working in, in Canada. And I think the issue is that we as humans are enamored of catchy solutions like a little checklist that's going to make everything go better. But we're not interested in the messy, you know, business of making it work, of implementation. Because implementation, that's the boring science of, right, who's going to be in charge, where the supply is going to be held, what are we actually measuring, has anyone thought about unintended consequences, what happens when the nurses flow to 17 West and we're short staff, who's going to bring the coffee, what do we do if we can't find what we need, all of those things, you know, it's a checklist in and of itself. But if you ignore the sort of technical things of how people use it, your checklist is just a piece of paper. And, and that's why it didn't work. And you'll get 100% compliance if you insist on it, but it means everyone's just checking the boxes and there's nothing meaningful for the patients. So we really have to think not just about making the intervention, but how we do this intervention and really you know, bring all the people to the table, not at the end, oh, okay, here's the checklist, doctors and nurses go make it work, mm-hmm. but when we decide, okay, we want to tackle medication lists. Okay, from the get-go, you need people on the ground. And I think one of the problems is that the decision makers, when's the last time they took a pulse or a blood pressure or took care of a patient? Mm-hmm. Most of them either never or 30 years ago. And there's such a disconnect between those who make the decisions and those who carry them out. So one of my, you know, I ended up accidentally in sort of the area of burnout and resilience when I did a piece last summer um, after our EMR transition that really devastated us and how it seems like we feel like we're being exploited by the EMR. Mm. But one of the things it dawned on me is that the people who make the decisions aren't doing any clinical medicine. So I think an important thing would be that everyone in healthcare work with patients. So if you're a medical director or the CEO or the chief nursing officer, 
you know, one morning a month in clinic, one week uh, on the wards, something. And if you if you're not, then you know, staff the front desk, answer the phones. Mm-hmm. I mean that be a very eye-opening experience to work the front desk one morning a week. And, and Lord knows we can use the extra hands on deck. But I don't think our administrators know what it's like to check into a clinic or to be a, a unit clerk on the wards. They have no clue. And if they did, they might then think about these interventions differently. Yeah, that's a that's a huge disconnect. And it relates to ideas I've talked about and, and had conversations with others about in terms of when a device is developed to use at the bedside. But it's developed by an engineer somewhere in some design firm who's never probably maybe never even been in a hospital room before themselves. And they're not a clinician. So the nurse receives this piece of equipment and they're like, wait a second, this this does not work with my workflow or this equipment should be designed this way or that way. So the end users are not involved in the design of the device or the process or the system. Right. Right. Yeah. So different agenda. So one of the things my pet peeve <laughs> is the medication alerts when we uh, write a prescription. There are thousands of them, mm-hmm. right? You know, patients over 65, every medication has got an alert. Interactions with the alcohol swabs and is a patient pregnant even though they're 70? There's so many um, that you, you have to just ignore them, just check them all just so you can get the darn prescription written. But what angers me is that buried in that hundred alerts is something important. You know, the Norvask and the Simvastatin interaction that I want to know about, mm-hmm. that I'm going to miss, because the issue of these medication alerts, it's not just a patient safety thing. It is a liability transfer, right? If they have all these alerts going, the hospital can say, well, MD was aware, right? They signed off on it. And the EMR can be like, you know, we, we made those alerts available. But in practice, it's impossible. So they've transferred the, the workload. And the same thing with the you know alerts at the nursing station. If every single machine is beeping and buzzing when the patient so much as sniffs, the one alert that's going to be you know the flat line, we're going to miss. And, oh, well, the nurses were alerted. They just you know they weren't paying attention. So the agenda is very different. We have to call it out for what it is. Because I think a lot of it is about transferring liability and transferring, frankly, the workload, the you know secretarial work onto the clinicians. You're so right. And in terms of the alarms, this is another conversation, but there's been written studies and articles about alarm fatigue that, you know, everything is beeping, like you said, and, and you become deaf to the alarms because it's kind of like when the um, – check engine light keeps coming on in your car and the mechanic keeps saying, ah, it's nothing. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. They come on all the time. And then you're on vacation and your car breaks down. You're like, damn it. (laughs) So, you know, we, we become inured to these things. Right. And then we're we're held accountable. Oh, the nurse got the alert. Mm -hmm. You know, she must be, you know, an idiot. Let's, you know, demote her to a desk job where the MD checked off, you know, the medication interaction. Doctor, what, you know, you had that. You didn't read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that a lot of it is is the effort for the hospital and the electronic medical record to shift liability off their, you know, derriers onto ours. Uh, and I yes. think to stand up and say, it's a patient safety issue. If you put 100 medication alerts, then the real one's going to be lost, and that's dangerous to patients. Just giving all the alerts, saying, "Okay, we're done. MD aware," mm-hmm. um, is is not that does not help our patients. It actually uh, harms them. Absolutely not. 
And I just want to point out and elucidate here that that you're speaking from experience. You've been practicing at Bellevue Hospital in New York City for more than 20 years. You're a clinical professor of medicine at NYU. You're the founder and editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review, which is an incredible medical literary review that people should definitely look into. And you've written for The Times, New York Times, Slate Magazine, The Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine. So you're coming from a place of deep, deep experience. And you've seen a lot in the last 20 years, including the rise of the EMR. And as much as the EMR has been a watershed moment for us to be able to have access 24-7 to all this information, you point out in the book that the EMR is definitely not a perfect animal and that we definitely need to look at it a little bit with a critical eye. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about this EMR issue and have you read a little bit from the book. And I also want to touch base on issues around malpractice and nursing and the Florence Nightingale effect. So we'll be right back for the second half of The Nurse Keith Show, episode 282. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Incredible Health, where hospitals apply to nurses instead of the other way around. You can create a profile in about three minutes and then sit back and relax as the interview requests for permanent jobs come to you. With Incredible Health, nurses and nurse practitioners get hired three times faster than the usual application and hiring process of 90 days or more, and you have access to their support team who help you every step of the way. On average, nurses who get hired through Incredible Health receive a 17% pay increase and a 15% decrease in commute time. They work with more than 200 academic and community hospitals across the country, including Stanford, Baylor Scott and & White, and Cedars-Sinai. If you're seeking work in California, Florida, Texas, and Illinois, sign up right now. And if you're in another state, check back every month as more states are being regularly added. And if you sign up at IncredibleHealth.com forward slash Nurse Keith, you'll receive your choice of a Tiffany necklace or Bose Bluetooth speaker once you accept a job offer. I thank Incredible Health for their generous support. And remember to head on over to IncredibleHealth.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts directly from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. So you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you refer as many people as you like and can continue to earn coaching credits. What a deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's episode. 
And we're back. Thanks for hanging out here on the Nurse Keith Show. Of course, this is episode 282, and the show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 282. And you can go there to check out everything you need to know about Danielle Ofri, our physician guest today from the Bellevue Literary Review and Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And Danielle, right before the break, we were talking about EMRs. <laughs> and um, you write... Don't get me started. Yeah, don't get you started. Don't get me started either. So, you know, I often hear stories from people about, oh my gosh, we just transferred from one EMR to the next and it was an absolute nightmare and stuff was lost and we couldn't access the old EMR and all this data couldn't be accessed. And you've written a lot in the book about EMRs and we can blame everything on them and we can also praise them for the ways in which they help us. So, sure. I mean, you have done fantastic things to, to help us out. I mean, mm-hmm. you remember the old days when the x-ray was in the surgeon's back pocket and the, the charts in dermatology clinic and the dermatologist has gone home already. I mean, right. those crazy, terrible things. And I never want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. I remember working in a clinical uh, a community health center in Massachusetts and you know, we had very complex patients and, you know, I was a HIV case manager. We, we did hep C management, et cetera, with very complicated patients with multiple comorbidities. And we had paper charts, of course, because this was the nineties and the early two thousands and, you know, the bad old days. And sometimes we were running around. No, actually all the time, the medical records, people and nurses were running around. Where is the chart? And occasionally a provider had to see a patient without a chart. And all they had was their demographic information, a med list, maybe from the pharmacy and a piece of paper. (laughs) And at best, and that was crazy. Right. And they had no access to any information whatsoever, and maybe they didn't even know the patient. So the EMR has has leveled that playing field, right, sometimes. And what are the ways in which you feel the EMR is not helping the situation? Right. Well, I'll, I'll give one more kudo to the EMR. So, for example, the outbreak of C. diff in a hospital, right? That's a devastating thing. And mm-hmm. our infection control people are running around trying to figure out where the positive cultures come from. It's very hard. With the EMR, you can actually track many more data points. And there's an example of a hospital with a C. diff outbreak that was able to track you know, every single patient in the entire hospital, every place they went, right? The GI suite and you know, the cath lab, every staff member they interacted with throughout the entire day. And that's an enormous amount of data we couldn't do on our own. And they were able to pinpoint the outbreak to a single CT scanner, one of you know 20 scanners that one hadn't been cleaned. And that's powerful stuff we could not have done in the days of paper charts. Great. On the other hand, the EMR can even create errors that wouldn't have existed before. And there's a harrowing case that Bob Wachter from UCSF wrote about in his book, The Digital Doctor. And if you'll indulge me, I'll just give you a minute or two into the case. It was a, a concerned a teenager being admitted, um, someone with an immunodeficiency, so he got a lot of medications, antibiotics. And he was being admitted for, and he needed to get Bactrim, right? You know Bactrim, one tab, P-O-B-I-D. Sure. But when you're diagnosing, when you're dosing for pediatrics, it's weight-based, clearly, because pediatric kids can weigh one kilo to 85 kilos, and it's five mg per kilogram. So the pediatric resident put in the patient's weight, calculated, came out to, I think, 193 milligrams, but the tablet is 163 of trimethoprim, so she rounded down. Now, the EMR, in effort to find errors 
in situations like that, whenever there's a rounding, an alert goes to the pharmacist. So the pharmacist calls the, the resident, verifies the dose, approves it, and the resident now goes back to re-enter the dose. Now it's just approval. But there's two ways to enter the dose, MIGS or MIGS per kilogram. The EMR defaulted to MIGS per kilogram. She put in the 160, the total dose, under MIGS per kilogram. And the patient is 38 kilograms. So that's 6,100 and something milligrams of trimethoprim, or oh my gosh. 38 and a half tablets of Bactrim, P-O-B-F-E. Mm. Now, it goes automatically to the pharmacy. Now, in effort to decrease error in the pharmacy, they've replaced the pharmacist with a pharmacy robot, which can dispense pills without any human errors. The message comes to the pharmacy robot, and it's been marked as approved by the pharmacist. And so the robot dispenses 38 and a half tabs of Bactrim, labels them all with a barcode, and sends it up to the nurse. The nurse on the floor unpacks the meds and says, huh, 38 and a half tabs, that's a lot of Bactrim. Now, she could stop and ask her supervisor, but in this hospital, um, getting meds delivered on time is one of the quality measures. So if she's late delivering meds, a red flag goes up and she gets a supervisor on her case and she doesn't want to do that. Or she can say, well, maybe I'll skip this patient, do my other ones and come back when I have a chance to ask my supervisor. But you can't do that either because in effort to decrease error, the EMR only lets you dispense meds right in a row down the floor. So she's in this conundrum. If she stops to ask for help, she's going to get dinged for being inefficient or not meeting quality measures. On the other hand, she's got some questions. Now she can see, boy, you know, the, the doctor was called, the pharmacist approved, here's all the tabs barcoded for safety, and plus she's in a big medical center. Patients often get crazy, wild, you know, off-label dosing, so this must be the case. So she goes to the patient who's used to getting tons of meds and dispenses 38 and a half tablets of Bactrim. Which the patient takes, she scans each one. And at first, he just starts to feel numbness and tingling in his fingers. And soon he gets becomes disoriented. And then he goes into cardiac and respiratory arrest, ends up in the ICU. Luckily, he survives and amazingly without damage. But the idea that this medical error, this error that anyone listening who's a clinician will know in a nanosecond, oh, Bactrim, one tab POBID, right? Exactly. Somehow, 38 and a half tablets, POBID, went through this entire system. And this is an error that never would have happened without the EMR. So it can create errors as well. We have to, we can't, just because it's technology doesn't make it right or better than us. It has its own set of new errors. That is quite a story. Um, I'm sure that nurse kicked herself like crazy. Like how, how could I possibly have thought that that was correct? Right. And nurse, pharmacist, the resident, all were trying to do the right thing. And yet it took on a life of its own. Yes. So we have to be aware that things we do, you know, in, with technology to minimize medical error often and can have unintended consequences. And that's part of the implementation issue. When you make a change for whatever reason, you have to think very hard and thoughtfully about what will be the unintended consequence and not just push it out and say, okay, docs, nurses, here's one more thing to do, one more checklist, one more, you know, workflow, because we think it's better. Absolutely. And if you think about it, you know, anytime we have a new intervention in medicine, a new treatment, we subject it to a randomized controlled trial, make sure the harms don't outweigh the benefits. Here, we've put the EMR onto every single patient. Has anyone tested this? Do we know that patients are better off? We, we don't know. We've put a technology on every single living, breathing patient with no data behind it. 
How come the EMR vendors get a free pass, but people with a new pacemaker have to test it out? These are questions we haven't really asked. That is a fascinating question. And on page 99, you point out that there's something that happens with an EMR in terms of dictating practice. And you say that when I open up the EMR, the computer forces me to document in its order, which has no relationship to the arc of my thoughts. This reflects the fact that EMRs were initially developed as billing systems. Only later did they start to incorporate clinical information. And even the best of EMRs do not think the way doctors think. We humans must be rerouted to the EMR's requirements. So the EMR even changes the way in which you need to approach a patient because you have to follow its pathway of checkboxes and, and whatnot, correct? It's very dangerous, particularly in the realm of, of addressing diagnostic error. Because in diagnosis, we ha is it, diagnosis is an integrative process. We have to integrate all sorts of disparate material the patient's story they tell us, the physical exam, the labs, the nonverbal cues, other people's consults. So it's very complicated. And your job as a clinician is to integrate all of this kind of data. Well, the EMR wants you to work by its sort of problem list. And while it works fine for the patient with just a UTI, it's great, it's fast, it's wonderful, but it's not very good for the complex patient with multiple issues. And it makes us consider their emphysema separate from their CHF, but those things overlap, as does their anxiety and, and their history of emotional trauma and their economic issues. Those all come together. So it works against the integrative process. And you have no choice because you can't close the encounter until you go through it the way it wants you to go. And so it's so frustrating, but also I think it makes us prone to error. Mm. So we could talk about the EMR probably for several hours. And you said, don't get me started. And I understand why you said that, because <laughs> I could go on about it as well. So I want to change channels just a little bit here, even though the EMR part is fascinating, and we could dig really deep into that. And I would like to ask you just to read a little passage, just so listeners can get a sense of your voice and the way in which you've written this book. Would you mind doing that for us? If the history of medicine over the past 200 years were a feature film, it would be a swashbuckling adventure epic. Heroes in white coats would brandish stethoscopes and pipettes, decapitating disease in single fell swoops with their medical machetes. Sanitation, antisepsis, and anesthesia would hurl across the screen, flattening 19th century illnesses. Vaccines and antibiotics would explode like grenades in the early 20th century, rescuing the masses from infectious marauders. Our triumphant superheroes would swagger into the second half of the 20th century, whirling about to execute 360 degrees of jujitsu strikes chemotherapy, dialysis, antipsychotics, blood transfusions, birth control, CT scanners, cardiac catheterization, ICU, statins, antihypertensive, HIV treatment, slaying every dragon in the room with hardly a backward glance. The movie would be one straight trajectory of progressive victory over disease, nearly doubling the average life expectancy before you even approach the unpopped kernels at the bottom of your greasy popcorn box. Staggering success has been the dominant leitmotif in medicine, with good reason. Turning once uniform killers into afterthoughts is an impressive feat that should not be taken for granted. But this theme of relentless victory hasn't left much space in the narrative for talking about medical errors and adverse outcomes of our treatment. At best, 
these were annoying pebbles along the road upon which our heroes confidently strode. That is a great passage. I actually had it uh, bookmarked here on page three, so I was reading along with you. And that is a wonderful metaphor of the ways in which we've seen medicine, you know, the, the marching progress of medicine from point A to point Z. And it hasn't exactly been that way, has it, through history? Yeah, I mean, it, it has been, but alongside that is, you know, harmful you know, outcomes of our treatments. You know, when we let a patient get a CAT scan that diagnoses their abscess, that is great, but we may put them into renal failure from the contrast. That may not be a medical error, but certainly an adverse outcome of a treatment intended to help, and we have to recognize that. And but normally we don't like talk about that. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Of course. Plus, we think, oh, it's going to get fixed by research. You know, we we were sort of so confident that it's going to be fixed. We don't spend a lot of time on that. Not to mention, it's a little embarrassing and humiliating. We don't love to talk about our limitations as a field or as people. Absolutely, and. In the, in the book, just after that passage, passage, you talk about Florence Nightingale and the struggles she had trying to convince the medical establishment that that hygiene was something that we needed to actually practice, sanitation and hygiene, and that this ex- acceptance of contagion being an unavoidable cause of death is something she was fighting against, and that was a systemic issue. And she needed to get people to listen to her, and eventually did, but she struggled. But it was very- and she also had to get people to listen to the idea that you have to measure what's going on. Biostatistics. Yeah. Biostatistics. And, and you know, the same thing when, when Peter Pronovos tried to talk about reducing catheter-related infections. We assume that's just, you know, that's just part of the game. Some patients will get infected. Mm-hmm. And hospitals didn't know how much they had. And the idea you have to measure it seemed absurd. But if you don't measure it, you don't know what you have or where it is. And I think because it's very threatening. And when Florence Nightingale pointed out that many of the treatments we take for granted at that time actually cause harm, she had real pushback because it's really threatening to the image of, of healthcare as it was then, as it is now. When you point out that things we do cause harm, even if unintended, you are really threatening the very identity of the whole system, and no one wants to hear it, and they want to shut you up. And her experience was um, repeated over and over and over again. Right, exactly. So there have been all these struggles around convincing the establishment that things need to change. And I did a podcast several months ago and I wrote a blog post, an article about what I call the seven most dangerous words in healthcare, which are, if I remember correctly, but that's the way we've always done it. And those are dangerous right. words. And that can also trip us up when we have biases and we have ways in which we've always done things because we're humans and we have habits. We have habitual ways of thinking and acting and reacting. And in the book, you mention obviously, you need to talk about bias because there's explicit discrimination, explicit bias. And then there's the the more subtle biases that we carry along with ourselves. And that is somewhat of a difficult thing to tackle because that's human behavior, right? That's human psychology. Often the implicit bias is much more powerfully related to, to uh, errors that we make than the explicit bias in terms of underdosing pain meds for, you know, different groups of people. We do that uh, implicitly, even if we're convinced that we're not racist or sexist and we don't want to be and we're here to help our patients, we do that nonetheless. And that's very, very hard to tackle 
the only way is to be, you know, forward and honest about that. And that's not comfortable to recognize that you who care so much about patients might actually be implicitly discriminating against patients. That's hard to hear. It doesn't you know, jive with our, our image of people who are dedicated in our field. Absolutely. And we take doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. Nurses do the, the Nightingale Oath. And we are bound to protect our patients, save save them from harm, do no harm, save lives as much as we can and make the best choices for our patients that we can as conscientious providers. And we have things working against us like conscious and unconscious bias. We brought up you brought up the issue of the EMR, how it hasn't actually been a 100% knight in shining armor. There's, there's, it's a little bifurcated. We have some very implicit difficulties with EMRs, which we've already mentioned. And then we have the whole issue of malpractice, you know, the, the, the amount of what you, you mention and others also talk about is defensive medicine. And you, you estimate in your book, or you quote an estimate that, 45 to 55 billion dollars is wasted on defensive medicine and of course doctors and nurse practitioners and providers have to protect themselves so the system really raises a lot of red flags doesn't it it absolutely does and when you think about that number and think about how many communities don't have enough dentists you know or or primary care or understaffed rural hospitals it's it's it makes me want to cry that the money is wasted in unnecessary cat scans and mris that you know have all their harms as well but that it's such a misallocation of resources when we surely need them you know the fact that we have so many children who don't get enough to eat and we're wasting money in defensive medicine whole other conversation. But yes, you know, we worry about the fear in this country of malpractice in the way that other countries don't as much. And, and clearly it requires a societal rethinking. But again, if we're trying to figure out, I mean, why does the U.S. spend two or three or 10 times as much as every other similarly developed country and our outcomes are last in almost anything you look at, we come out last um, and, and Clearly, we're not spending our dollars correctly. We are not. That's fascinating and maddening at the same time. And here we are, uh, March of 2020, in the midst of moving towards a presidential election in November of 2020. And healthcare is often at the center of voters' minds. You know, healthcare and and uh, their ability to to financially survive. So. I don't know how many millions of people we now have who are uninsured in the United States, but we are really paddling against the current in many ways in healthcare here. Yeah, it's clear. I mean, the fact that anyone doesn't have easy access to care, you know, every other country sort of has come to, you know, maybe not be a perfect system, but the idea that it's one of the things you get as being part of this country. You get roads, you get fire protection if there's a fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like you call the fire department and say, oh, sorry, I can't come put out your fire. You, you don't have insurance. That you know, Because if a house goes up in flames, the rest of the neighborhood's going to burn too. And the truth is, if someone's tuberculosis doesn't get treated, the rest of the neighborhood goes up in flames. But even if their CHF doesn't get treated because that person then doesn't work or isn't able to you know, care for their family. So it's all you know, a community issue. And so I think just morally and ethically, but also practically and financially, the cost of taking care of patients who don't get primary care is, is an absurd waste of money. 
Yeah, it's it's outrageous. And gosh, I would love to talk to you for several more hours. We're going to have to have you back at some point. But you have written eight books. When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. That's the one we're speaking about now. And when does that get released? That is released in April. Great. Okay, so April 2020. Then we have a book called What Doctors Feel. And then we have What Patients Say and What Doctors Hear. That's the third book. We have Singular Intimacies, Becoming a Doctor at Bellevue. Then we have Medicine and Translation, Journeys with My Patients. And then we have Intensive Care, which is a memoir, I believe, right? More or less? That's a little bit of an anthology. I won't call that its own book. It's a little bit of anthology. An anthology. Okay. And then we have incidental findings, lessons from my patients, right, Mm -hmm. in the art of medicine. And then you have the Bellevue Literary Review. Um, There's a book, I think it's sort of a compendium from the Bellevue Literary Review. That's of the BLR, yes. Yeah, with a foreword by Sherwin Newland, who is an amazing physician author. Um, His books, Wisdom of the Body, that book is just absolutely incredible and how we die. So you, you're said to be one of the foremost voices in the medical world today. And what it says on your website is that you shine an unflinching light on the realities of healthcare and speaking passionately about the doctor patient relationship. And I can't wait to read more of your books and to have my audience learn about all of this incredible work you've been doing in the world. So people can find you at Danielle ofri.com and that's d-a-n-i-e-l-l-e and it's ofri o-f-r-i.com so that's your central clearinghouse for all things danielle correct yeah yeah the articles up there and then i send out a once a month ish newsletter with new articles uh, if anyone's interested it's not a commercial email it's just new stuff from either me or the bellevue literary review great we'll have links to that we'll have embedded um hopefully a one of your TED Talks in the show notes. And people can also find you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, just like me. I'm on all those platforms. So Dr. Ofri, Danielle, thank you so much. This is so elucidating. And I would like to have you back sometime because there's a lot more to talk about. So perhaps as you're winding up this long period of um, you know, promoting this book, we can have you back on the show to dig a little deeper. It would be my pleasure. And I'm especially interested in doing this you know in this book when we do harm you know i would say each of my books ends up incorporating nursing more and more and for this book it's probably the most of any of my books as i Mm -hmm. started to have a larger lens i think in my initial books were just my own experience and particularly in medical error and patient safety I've been able to incorporate much more about nursing. I have had a lot of nursing advisors, and one of the main cases focuses around a nurse. And I've learned so much, and I'm so eager to be, you know, more in contact academically with my nursing colleagues. And I know we always talk about, you know, medicine's a team, yada, 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 and often it's just lip service. But I think that it is a team, not just for our individual patients, but in the larger world of healthcare, it really is a team. And I think that we have more in common than we have differences. And, and you know, I genuinely want to be part of that world as much as I can. Thank you for that. I, that I'm sure there's someone out there listening, a nurse who's nodding her head and saying, oh, my God, you know, um, 
<laughs> Amen. Thank you so much for that, for that recognition. And this is 2020, the year of the nurse. It's the 200th anniversary of the birth of Florence Nightingale. So it's a big year. The World Health Organization is recognizing nursing's contributions and midwives' contributions. So that's lovely of you to say that. So I paid you well. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So I really appreciate it. And this has been fascinating. And I really can't wait to have you back to talk even more and dig into these stories like the story of um, the the one patient. Well, there's several stories that wind through this, but Jack's story is really incredible. Yeah. And we didn't have a chance to delve into Jack's story, but it winds through the book and illustrates a lot of points that are just brilliant. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Okay, take care. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Thanks. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 282. And remember that you can find jobs at nursekeith.com under the resources list and lots of resources for you to check out. And I really encourage you to go to danielofri.com, connect with Dr. Ofri, subscribe to her newsletter, buy her books, and check out what she has to say because there's so much fodder for you here for your career, your life, and your collaborative relationships with other providers. So be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith signing off from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Dr. Daniel Ofri bidding us adieu from New York City. New York City. Dr. Ofri, thank you so much, and we will catch everyone on the flip side.